hey, can, can the devil be saved? Like if he decides to be good, uh, can he be saved? Can the devil and his demons, like if they change their mind, we're going to answer that at the end of this. I think you're going to have a clearer understanding of, of why my answer is what it is. Why the Bible says, I think, pretty clearly what it says about whether or not the devil can be saved and whether or not demons can change their mind and, and come back to God and all that. But I do want to say this. The main point of this is to say um, today's message is all about why Jesus must be one of us, why he must be man, humanity, Adam. If you don't understand why Christ has to be one of us, um, you're missing out on a, a lot when it comes to the gospel. Um, and so I hope that Hebrews 2 today is going to clarify for us not only the answer to, hey, can the devil and his demons be saved? Is there like opportunity for them to have salvation? But also, I hope that you'll leave here understanding why Jesus doesn't become an angel, why he actually becomes one of us, why he becomes a man. Um, takes on the nature of humanity. It's very important to understand this. So we're in Hebrews chapter 2. I'm just highlighting this back and forth as I figure out where I'm going to start. Um, obviously verse 1, but gather my thoughts. Let's get to it. Hebrews chapter 2. It's a warning to not to neglect your salvation. Weirdly enough, okay, right after uh, the author of Hebrews, I always almost slip and say Paul. I don't want to say um paul but i end up almost saying okay we ended chapter one by saying uh the author of hebrews says aren't they all ministering spirits referring to the angels uh sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation like the the angels why even compare them to christ aren't they just sent out as messengers to benefit the people of god who are to inherit salvation. Now, now keep track of this little phrase, inherit salvation. And we're going to go right into chapter 2 to start talking about this great salvation. Okay? It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. To what we've heard. Lest we drift away from it. Okay? So, the line of thought is this salvation is so great. Uh, because Jesus is so much better than angels. We've talked about that time and time again already. You can go watch the past episodes on that. Jesus is superior to angels in more ways than one. And the salvation that he establishes is so valuable, so significant, and matters very much that we should pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Now, the author of Hebrews is writing to a primarily Jewish audience that is full of people who are doubting and, and tempted to go back to the old Jewish system. And uh, AD 70 hasn't come yet where Rome comes in and Jer destroys Jerusalem and the temple system with it. Okay, that hasn't happened yet. But Hebrews is prophetically declaring that that really is coming. Um, and there's nothing really to go back to if a, a first century Israelite were to say, you know what, I heard about Jesus, I heard about the gospel, I heard about his death and resurrection. That's not for me. I'm going to go back to the old covenant. There's nothing for them to go back to. There's nothing for them to go back to. And this is not at all a hatred against Jews. I don't know why anyone would accuse me of such a thing. The point is, this is primarily to a, a first century Jewish audience that, that has a cr few Christians, you know, I guess you might say Christians, but also people who are on the fence about Christianity. Okay, so we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. So the question is, what have we heard? And what is the it that we are so prone to drift away from and can Christians drift away from the it <laughs> a lot of questions here I'm back verse 2 for since the message declared by angels proved 
right? There's evidence that it was reliable. Apparently, there's a message that was declared by angels. Okay, what you're going to see here is all throughout the book of Hebrews, okay, the law, Old Testament, Mosaic Covenant, is going to be contrasted with the new covenant we have in Christ. And so here we have another contrast, the first of many contrasts between Moses and Jesus. Okay, the message declared by angels is in fact the old covenant law given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And it proved to be reliable. Okay, the, the law proved to be reliable. How? Well, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Read throughout the Old Testament. Read about the wilderness wanderings of the Israelite nation. Read about how Korah and his boys would rise up and they got destroyed when they ro rose up against the law, um, which declared Moses and Aaron and, and the priesthood to be what it was. Read about how um, time and time again, anyone who would disobey and rebel against the message declared by angels or the law how there was a just retribution there was this there was actually punishment penalty for their transgression or disobedience okay so so the author of hebrews is framing up the the jewish audience really understands the sacredness and uh the weight of the law okay they love their law and the author of hebrews is using that to his advantage and he's saying look you understand that the message moses gave to the people of israel that was declared by angels Right? That's pretty cool. But there's something even better because we've already established that Jesus is better than angels. Therefore, the message he brings is going to be better than the message brought by angels on Mount Sinai to Moses. Okay, you're going to see it in a minute. And if it proved to be reliable, how? Well, we know the message was legitimized and validated by God by the incredible, miraculous, you know, deaths of people who would rebel against the law. Whether the ground opened up, right, and people fell in, or whether, you know, the fire broke out in the camp, or whether people perished of, of serpent bites or, or, or disease, or plagues would fall on the people, or the Levites come out and kill people with the sword in response to the wicked golden calf incident. No matter what, when people rise up against the law of God in the Old Testament and rebel in arrogance and pride, well, God punishes that. So that was God validating his message and his messenger Moses. Now, verse 3. Okay, if, if that message from angels in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was, was reliable and proven to be the divine word of God, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And you go, what salvation? We haven't talked about a great salvation at all. Actually, he has. Along his line of Jesus is superior to angels, he got to the point where he says, look, and ministering spirits, angels, are actually benefiting those who are to inherit salvation. Christians are people who are going to inherit salvation. Now, we already have salvation. It has our name on it. But there's an inheritance with our name on it as well. In the sense that we haven't fully realized, actualized, the full sense of that salvation in Christ. Okay, so all throughout the book of Hebrews, you're going to see Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than, and what he establishes is by nature going to be better than what Moses brought or what angels brought. So verse three, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. Now remember, the message of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant law given to Moses on Mount Sinai, that message was declared by angels. But here in verse 3, 
there's a great salvation that people can neglect, I guess. And it was declared at first by the Lord himself. Now, whether you go to the Old Testament and say it was prophetically declared, or whether you go to Jesus himself and say it was declared by Jesus personally, it's both and. Like God prophetically declares the message in the Old Testament. Jesus comes on the scene, preaches the gospel of the kingdom, and it was attested to us, the author of Hebrews is saying, to us as the early church, it was attested to us by those who heard. So the eyewitness testimony also validated the message of this great salvation. So with the Old Testament, you, you do have just retribution validating that message. Uh, you, you do have, you know, incredible, miraculous signs and wonders and, and punishment uh, surrounding that message. When you disobey it and when you rebel, when you rise up against it and you say, you know what, forget God and his law. Okay, there was, there was clear validation from God. Now, when it comes to the message of the gospel, not only do we have the prophetic insight in the Old Testament, not only do we have, you know, uh, the Old Testament prophets and patriarchs and saints foreshadowing and and prophesying of this great salvation, but we have Jesus himself declaring it. We have the eyewitness testimony, people seeing the signs and wonders and, and the resurrection and Christ ascending. We have eyewitness testimony, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders. So God himself is testifying of this message, not just his son, God the son, not just the eyewitness testimony, but God himself doing signs and wonders and various miracles. Now, whether that's through Jesus himself to validate the gospel or the signs and wonders that come through the apostles in the early church, the point is there's supernatural power, right? That is validating this message of a great salvation. Now, before we get to, hey, what does it mean to neglect this salvation? We need to establish what this salvation is. Well, it's validated by Jesus who declares it. It's validated by eyewitness testimony, namely the apostles and the hundreds of people Jesus actually appeared to after his resurrection. It's, it's validated by God himself through signs and wonders and miraculous you know, miracles through the apostles and the early church and Christ himself. And the Holy Spirit is actually validating this message by the gifts he distributes according to his will. And so here we see uh, a ton of validation of this message. In other words... If God so, if God dealt swiftly with Old Testament rebels, how much more is he going to uh, punish, penalize, and condemn those who neglect the message of salvation that's brought by Jesus, validated by eyewitness testimony in the resurrection, signs and wonders of God, uh, spiritual gifts given to the church by the Holy Spirit, and here we see the Holy Spirit distributing gifts according to his will. Okay. So the point is you have more than enough testimony, more than enough uh, validation of the message of salvation. And then he's going to go right into this interesting topic. It doesn't seem to connect at all at first. Watch. So essentially he's saying, look, you should not neglect this salvation. Now, to drift away from what people hear, it's synonymous with neglecting a great salvation. The, the word neglect here, weirdly enough, um, the idea here is Matthew 22.5. I'm glad I read this earlier. 
Jesus gives the parable of the feast in Matthew 22. And the, the kingdom of heaven, he says, is, can be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And then the king sends his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they wouldn't come. So he sent other servants. In other words, they refused the invitation. So he sends more servants, like more prophets. See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Just come and enjoy the wedding feast. Verse 5, but they paid no attention. Right? They went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and actually killed them. So to disregard or to neglect a great salvation is to reject it in disbelief and rebellion. That's the idea here in Matthew 22, 5 and in Hebrews 2 is neglecting a great salvation. It's not like I drift away from something I, I cling to and belong to. The drifting away is, is about a message people hear, okay? When we hear that people drift away from what they hear, we assume they believe and they rejected or lost their salvation. There's no implication of that here in Hebrews 2 at all whatsoever. Okay, people are hearing a message that God himself validates a message of salvation, and they're actually drifting away from it. They're neglecting it. Like Matthew 22, 5 at the parable of the wedding feast, they're disregarding it. They're not choosing not to believe. They're rejecting it entirely in rebellion. So this is not a Christian who doesn't, who just doesn't like tend to their faith enough and, and then they find themselves in hell one day. This is a person who actually hears the message of salvation and they drift away from it, meaning they pay no attention to it. They don't actually heed it. They don't actually take it seriously. They neglect it. And the author of Hebrews is saying, we should not do that. Like when you hear the gospel, when you hear the message of such a great salvation, you shouldn't just let it fall to the wayside like the parable of the sower. You shouldn't just let it fall on thorny, hard, you know, shallow ground. You should really pay attention to what you're listening to and believe because everyone is going to hear a degree of the gospel well there's multiple times once twice a hundred times everyone is going to have uh, a degree of experience with the message of christ and i say that carefully i do i say that carefully because god is faithful to deliver um enough testimony of himself to everyone on the planet throughout human history. In other words, everyone has an opportunity to find themselves at the feet of God, uh, whether they have the exact language or the point is the great salvation that has been preached by Jesus, validated by God, you know, verified by eyewitness testimony. It's not enough to hear that message. Because someone can hear it and walk away, drift away from it and disregard it entirely. People can hear it and reject it and go, I don't want that. I'm going to neglect that and not tend to that seed and not let it actually blossom into salvation and obey it. I'm going to leave it alone and just ignore it. Or you can believe the message of Christ and have salvation as a, as a result of your faith. Okay, so there. this is not talking about Christians who just neglected their salvation and didn't tend to it and ended up in hell one day. This is not talking about Christians who heard the gospel, believed it, and then drifted away slowly and ended up separated from God for eternity. This is about, there are people in the audience that the author of Hebrews is writing to. There are people who are going to read this letter, 
He's not assuming everyone that's going to read this in, in the Jewish audience is saved. There are people who have heard about Christ and they're tempted to walk away, drift away from this back into the Old Testament, Old Covenant way of relating to Yahweh. Instead of receiving Jesus as the Messiah, they hear it and go, eh, this is not for me. And they're neglecting a great salvation. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you understand that when people rose up against the law and against the, the, the testimony of God in the Old Covenant, like they were dealt with swiftly. Like they were definitely done away with. How much more, how much more seriously is God going to take people who neglect the salvation established by Jesus? In verse 5, it goes, it wasn't to angels that God subjected the world to come. Now, now here's where we get into starting to answer the question of, so can the devil and his demons be saved if they change their mind? You know, here's where we get into the question of why did Jesus have to be a man? Why did he have to be one of us? Well, why couldn't he just come in some spiritual, immaterial form, do something magical, and poof, we're good? Why did he have to take on human flesh? And here's why. Verse 5. I want you to think of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 when you read verse 5 here, okay? So, when I read this right now, I want you to think Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God makes man and woman out of the dust of the ground, of course, woman from the side of man, gives them authority over the earth to cultivate, rule, and govern over the world that God made for them, under God's authority, of course, but God gave them the earth to steward, like essentially as rulers, as kings and queens, under the authority of God. They're called to be uh, authorities, uh, royalty over God's good earth. Now watch, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Now, the author of Hebrews here is talking about a coming world. Not a world that currently is, a world that is coming. And he's saying that world wasn't subjected to, handed over to the authority of angels. No, 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 no. The, the, the world we're speaking of, actually it's been testified somewhere. And right now he's going to quote Psalm 8, verse 4 through 6. It says, what is man? Now, I really want you to think about this. This verse can leave a person undone if you read this correctly. What is humanity? Like, say this to the Lord. What, what is humanity that you're mindful of us? Or the son of man that you actually care for him? Now, in context... Psalm chapter 8 is talking about humanity. I'm not saying it's not about Christ, okay? But I am saying it is about humanity, but it is mostly and ultimately about Christ, who is the representative of humanity, okay? So I want to take you to Psalm chapter 8. As the author of the Psalms is writing this, as the psalmist is putting pen to paper, he is writing down what is true of humanity. God is mindful of humanity. God cares for humanity. Uh, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. God did make humanity lower than the spiritual beings you call angels uh, for a little while. God did crown humanity with glory and honor in the garden. God did put everything in subjection 
under his feet. Now the his there, gender, gender neutral term. Uh, in our culture, to say he as representing a family is, is offensive, but in first century Christian culture, not at all, not at all. To say he as referring to the, the, the man and woman who are the head of the, the family, you know, it's not at all offensive to say he representing both. So in other words, God puts the world in subjection to the feet of humanity. Now, the problem with the author quoting this scripture, I'm not saying the author has an issue, but at first glance, the problem is verse 5 is talking about a world that's coming. But he's quoting Psalm chapter 8, which is talking about the world presently. So the psalmist in Psalm 8 says, Oh man, Lord, you're so mindful of us. You care so deeply for us. And, and you go, how do you know that? Well, God made us a little while lower than the angels, but he crowned us with glory and honor. He actually put the world in subjection to the feet of humanity. And he says, go be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Have dominion. Cultivate. Rule and reign. Like steward the good world that I've given you for your good, for your benefit. That's how God crowns humanity with glory and honor as the pinnacle of his creation. Okay, so you go, how does God crown humanity? No other creature, both spiritual or material, has the authority over the world originally. God doesn't give that unique responsibility to anything except humanity. So in that sense, humanity is crowned with a beautiful responsibility and opportunity that no other creature in existence has. They're given authority over the world to steward, to cultivate, to be fruitful and multiply. And the psalmist in Psalm 8 is talking about the world in its present form. So you see the tension there? The author of Hebrews is talking about a future world, but he's quoting a passage that is about the present world. So he's going, look, God didn't subject the future world to angels. He subjected it to humanity. And you go, prove it. And he goes, well, in Psalm 8, and you go, Psalm 8 is talking about the present world. And he's going, exactly. The, what you see now, it gives you a glimpse into the future when you look at it through the filter of Christ. Now watch. Remember when I said Psalm chapter 8 is about humanity? Yes? Amen. That doesn't mean it's not about Christ. In other words, uh, so many roads to go down. In the beginning, God created the world to be stewarded by humanity. We lost that authority by handing ourselves over to sin and death and the devil and saying, we want to follow you. And we lost that ability to actually faithfully steward and cultivate the world under the authority of God in honor of him. We lost that ability. It doesn't mean we stop being image bearers of God, but God always intended for the world to be cultivated by humanity. So when we gave that up, right, someone has to come back and win back our ability and our authority um, to cultivate and rule over the world, okay? So what Jesus does is he does exactly that. He comes into our world. He wins back what we lost so that the coming world, right, is going to be put under the feet of Christ 
And we who follow in his footsteps get to rule and reign with him over the new creation. So Psalm chapter 8 is about the current form of the world. Okay. But Psalm chapter 8 is more importantly, and I think ultimately, foreshadowing and pointing to the coming future world that is going to be subjected to humanity. And you go, how? Well, because someone who represents us, someone who lived perfectly, won back the authority over not just this current world, but the world to come. So, verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. When God originally gave the world to humanity, there was nothing left outside of his control except God himself, of course. But we are to control and, and govern and have dominion and lovingly cultivate the world in a, under the authority of God. Okay? So I want you to see this. Originally, God puts everything, really mean everything, in his created world. He put it in subjection to humanity. It was always God's intention to have human image bearers who would rule his good world under his authority. So he left nothing outside of their control. The animals, the birds, the fish, the plants, the trees. Okay. And we see this in Genesis chapter 2 when Adam starts naming. That's a form of having dominion over the animals. So watch. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. Like, is that true? Do we see this world and everything in this world, every creature, every tree, do we see it all under the authority of man in perfect subjection? No, we don't. Do we see this world in perfect obedience to God? Really, Jesus, the perfect representative of humanity? No. There are a lot of people who are rebelling against Jesus. There are a lot of things in our world that are out of order. They're, out, they're, they're outside of God's intended structure. So we don't currently yet see the world as it's going to be. It doesn't mean it's not going to be like that. It just means currently we don't see it the way it's eventually going to be. The way it's going to be forever isn't the way how it is right now. Okay, verse 9. But even though we don't see everything in subjection to humanity, like we don't see humanity perfectly ruling under the authority of God over the world, but we do see him. Now, this is where the him becomes singular. Okay? So he shifts. It's very subtle. Verse 8, the him, it's referring to humanity. Again, it's a plural form of saying, look, humanity is is really in control of and, and put in authority over the world originally. And again, in our culture, to say him as, as, as a way to talk about humanity, that can be offensive. Oh, so it's just about the male, you chauvinistic. No, the point is, I don't want to get into the culture, but there is a way to, to talk about humanity in a gender-neutral way by saying him. Everything is put in subjection under him. Everything is put under his feet. Everything, you've crowned him with glory and honor. That's true of, of man and woman. But then verse 9, it shifts to a singular he. And I know this because watch. 
we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. That's how I know it's singular, because the context. Guess what Jesus is? Now, he's going to use Psalm 8 to refer to Christ. In other words, the author of Hebrews sees Jesus all over Psalms chapter 8. When he reads verse 7, you made him for a little while lower than angels, you've crowned him with glory and honor, he goes, that's Jesus. Watch. We don't yet see the world as it's supposed to be. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. How do we know he was only for a little while made lower than the angels? Because he resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. So it was only a tiny, you know, on the timeline of humanity, it was a tiny speck of, of time where Jesus was, in his human nature, assuming a role that was lesser than the angels. Not in his divinity, in his humanity. And we see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So, we see Jesus currently, not eventually, currently, he's crowned with glory and honor. Okay? And you go, when did that happen? The resurrection and the ascension. That's when the Father bestows upon Jesus the glory and the honor as the first of resurrected humanity to extend forgiveness to humanity. Uh, the glory and honor there is not speaking of Jesus' value. It's not speaking of his significance or his worth or his divinity. Or his, it's speaking of his, as a resurrected human, he's crowned with life and the authority as the first of resurrected humanity, he now has the authority and ability to grant forgiveness of sins and eternal life through his name to anyone who would believe. But notice how he's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So, originally, in the garden, God crowns humanity with glory and honor by, um, what's it called? By a, in the form of a coronation. Adam and Eve are crowned as the rulers of the world under God's authority. But the crowning here of Christ doesn't come through creation and coming into existence. Well, it's a form of coming into existence. It actually comes through the suffering of death. In other words, Jesus suffers death, and as a result... He's crowned with glory and honor. And you go, there there it is. He can't be God. It's not talking about him being God. It's talking about him being the first of new creation. The first of new humanity. He makes way for us to follow in his footsteps. And now he is glorified, ascended to the right hand of the Father to be the perfect high priest, to be the perfect mediator, to be the only name that grants forgiveness and salvation. And it comes through death. And in, in the same way that Adam and Eve come into existence and they're crowned with glory and honor at that creation, there is a way in which, okay, I'm not saying Jesus is a created being, but I am saying the resurrected human nature of Christ is something that comes into existence. In the same way you might think of Adam and Eve coming into existence in the garden. 
And so in that way, glory and honor follow that coming into existence. In other words, Adam and Eve come into a glorified state, not like a perfect in terms of like, they don't have the opportunity to sin, but God created them in a, in a honorable, glorious state. Now, of course, they fell from that. But Jesus comes out of the tomb, comes out of death into a glorified, honorable, resurrected state. So through death, he achieves the higher status you and I could never, ever have on our own. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, this is a question you should ask people who don't believe that Jesus is God. Now, I'm a Trinitarian. I don't believe he's the Father. I don't believe he's the Spirit. I believe he's a distinctly different person sharing the exact same nature and essence uh, and, and, and being as the Father and the Spirit. Okay. But when, when people go, I don't believe Jesus is God. Do you, okay. Why? Question. Why is Jesus able to taste death for everyone? Why is Jesus able to taste death for everyone? How is he valuable enough? If he's just a human... Okay, and this is not to argue for the Trinitarian position. This is just to argue for his divinity. Jesus being God. That that's the only thing that makes sense for why he can why he's valuable enough and sufficient enough to taste death for everyone. Now, when you ask people, why is Jesus capable of tasting death for all of humanity? Think of the billions, if not trillions, of people that have ever existed throughout human history. Why is one person valuable enough and sufficient enough to taste death for all of them in their place? And you go, well, he's perfect. He never sinned. Okay, that just means that he is righteous. That doesn't mean he can make anyone else righteous. That just means, hey, great job, Jesus. Like, you are perfect. Doesn't benefit me at all. So what is... It's not just that Jesus is perfect. That can't be it. Because if he is perfect, that only affects himself. That doesn't affect anyone else. You track with my logic? You can't just be good enough. It's not possible to be so good. You can't be so good that it affects other people around you. You can only be good enough for you. If I'm trying to get righteous in the sight of God, me being perfect earns my righteousness. It doesn't earn anyone else's righteousness. If I perfectly follow the law, never mess up, never fail, the only thing that happens is that I'm righteous in the sight of God. It affects no one. There's no horizontal influence. So why is Jesus sufficient, capable enough to taste death for everyone? Why is one man? What makes him different? He's perfect. We already addressed the fact that perfection isn't enough to touch other humans. My righteousness is my own. My perfection is my own. It doesn't touch anyone else. The answer is that Jesus has to be. He has to be God in the flesh. Otherwise, he is not valuable enough. 
he's not powerful enough to actually take on all the sins of humanity and taste death for everyone. Only God can do that. No human can. Okay? There's absolutely... No human is valuable enough inherently on their own, by their own efforts, to taste death for every human being that's ever existed and to pay for all the sins of humanity. It's not possible. Read the law. No one is going to be made righteous by the efforts of another. No one is going to, you know... uh, you know, be penalized for the sin of another. We are penalized or rewarded by our own righteousness or by our own sin. So, it's by the grace of God that through the suffering of death, Jesus is actually able to taste death for everyone. So, God is the only one who can actually timelessly exist eternally, to impact every human being that has ever existed at every point of human history. Only God can do that. For Jesus to taste death for everyone, that means, I really want you to think about this, okay? Think about how big humanity's sin debt was. Like, how big was our debt? How big was our sin? You take every human being in the world that ever sins uh, in the lifetime of about, man, let's say 80 years, I'm capable of a lot of sin at the heart level, in my attitudes, in my thought life, in my actions, with my words. I'm capable of a lot of sin. Now times that by like a trillion. That's a lot of debt. To offset that debt, You need someone extremely valuable. One life isn't sufficient. Unless that one life is infinite in nature and eternally existent. Then, not only is he valuable enough to offset all the weight of our sin, not only is he capable of taking on the infinite nature of the punishment of sin, but he's also capable of touching every single person that has ever existed and make a way for them to have salvation because he existed at every point in human history. So do you see why Jesus actually has to be God in the flesh in order to sufficiently pay for humanity's sin? He has to be infinite, okay? And he has to be eternal, meaning timeless, no beginning, no end, existing at every point in human history. Otherwise, how is he affecting someone in the past that pre-existed him? Otherwise, how is he affecting someone in the future that's going to outlive him? He has to exist at every point in human history. So Jesus tastes death for who? Everyone. And you go, how is that possible? By the grace of God, he sends his son to taste death for everyone. Now, I don't want to get too down, too far down that track. I just want to bring that up for people who are like, I don't believe Jesus is God. I don't know, bro, like, you have to make sense of how one random, perfect, okay, I get that he's perfect, how one perfect Jewish carpenter can affect every human being that's ever existed. You have to logically do a lot of gymnastics to get to a point where it makes sense without Jesus being God. But the point is, we're talking about Jesus actually being crowned with glory and honor through suffering, through death. In other words, Jesus goes, I'll taste death for everyone. 
I'll taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he... Now the he there is not referring to Jesus, but God, like the Father here, not God the Son. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, okay, that he, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So my question is, if Jesus is God in the flesh, at what point did he ever, uh, at what point did he become perfect? Like if he's God, isn't he always perfect? Like if, if he's God, there's no origin point of his perfection. And yet Jesus here is being made perfect. So how do we reconcile the two? Well, he's not being made perfect in terms of his value or his divinity. He's being made perfect in terms of being the source of salvation. Now watch. So it was fitting. What's fitting? Well, that God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, God is bringing many children to himself to glory. How? Well, he's making the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus suffers, he tastes death for everyone, he takes on the death of humanity that we deserve, and he's made perfect. How? He becomes the founder of our salvation. That's what it means for him to be made perfect. We have no salvation unless Jesus takes on our death. You see it? So his death, his suffering, his separation from the Father is a real, legitimate, uh, substitutionary atonement. Okay, he literally takes our place. And when he resurrects to new life, when he ascends to the right hand of the Father to be our perfect high priest and mediator, in the process, he's becoming the founder of our salvation, the high priest of a new covenant, the first of resurrected humanity. That, that's what it means that he's becoming perfect. He's ascending from the grave into a new resurrected human nature. It's a new mode of existence, not in his divinity, not as God, but as a human. He died, resurrects to a new human nature, the first of resurrected humanity, and he's perfected in that sense. He becomes the means of salvation. He becomes the means of forgiveness. He becomes a high priest and is appointed to be the perfect high priest to establish a new covenant. So he becomes the founder of our salvation. That's what it means that he's perfected here. He's becoming something that he wasn't previously. Right? Jesus, God is always the source of salvation. But there is no way for humanity to be saved until someone valuable enough takes on the sin debt and takes on the death that apparently is going to affect every person on the planet that ever exists and makes a way for them to have salvation. So, he's not perfected in terms of, now Jesus is sinless. No. He's not perfected in terms of, he ascended to divinity. No, he doesn't become God. He's always God. God doesn't cease to be God or he's not God. God, by very nature, by his essence, cannot stop being who he always has been and who he always will be. So 
He's perfect through suffering in the fact that, well, he suffers and becomes our, uh, the founder of our salvation. Okay. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Who's he who sanctifies? Well, the founder of our salvation here. That's the one who sanctifies, Jesus. Who are those that are sanctified? Well, those whose death Jesus tasted. All have one source. So Jesus is resurrected from the dead by the power of the Father. Boom. That same power is at work sanctifying, setting apart the people of God who would trust in Jesus, who is the founder of salvation. Okay? So that, that's, the, that's what it means that Jesus and Christians have one source. It's that, well, who established Jesus to be the founder of our salvation? Well, the Father. Well, who makes us sanctified through the name of Jesus? Well, the Father. And Jesus is, has the authority to make us uh, new. But the source of our sanctification, I'll say it like this. Who perfected Jesus' human nature through his suffering? I would say the Father. That's exactly what Jesus did. He subjected himself to the hands of the Father. When he said, I, into your hands I commit my spirit, Okay, part of that is saying, uh, I, here's me giving up my life breath unto thee. But it's also saying, I trust you to do what you're going to do through my death and through my resurrection. He submitted himself to the hands of the Father to be resurrected by the power of the Father. And so in that sense, the source of his new resurrected human nature is indeed the Father. And the source of our resurrected human nature and our sanctifi sanctified state God is the source of that. So no matter what, we're looking to God and saying, you save me, you sanctify me. Now, he goes right into this. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Call who brothers? Well, those who are sanctified. The ones that Jesus suffered for. The ones that, you know, Jesus actually tasted death for. Okay? And by the grace of God the Father, it makes way for God the Son to achieve our salvation. I'll say it like this. In every crucial event of human history, creation, atonement, the resurrection, the indwelling of the, the person, of the Christian, the, the establishment of the church, the, the prophetic teaching, regardless, wherever you find yourself in human history, throughout the Bible, You'll always see the Father, Son, and the Spirit at work doing different roles, playing different parts, coexisting in perfect harmony and agreement to accomplish the same perfect purpose, but assuming different roles, uh, like at the baptism of Jesus, at the Mount of Transfiguration, at the resurrection, at the indwelling of the Spirit, at creation. You see three clearly distinct individuals who are functioning as one perfect divine Godhead. You can't think of anything that is in more perfect unity, but I don't want to get on that tangent. The point is, Jesus isn't ashamed to call them brothers. And you wonder why uh, the author of Hebrews is going to emphasize that. Why bring that in? Remember, we're still talking about the fact 
that God has subjected the world to come, he's put that under the feet of humanity, not angels. Who does God give new creation to? Not angels, not spiritual beings. He gives it to man, humanity, Adam. And you go, how is that possible? I thought sin interrupted that. Well, that's why he pauses and talks about Jesus who assumed an inferior role in his human nature and became lesser, right? Philippians 2. He laid aside his glory, laid aside all the worship, all the adoration, all the majesty that he's had in eternity, lays it aside to assume a human form, becomes lower than the angels for a little while in order to be crowned with glory and honor to be perfected through his suffering. That's why the author of Hebrews pauses to go, let, let me explain to you why the world to come, new creation, is given to new humanity. It's because Jesus made a way for that to happen. Right? He was sanctified. He was perfected. He resurrected. He ascended. Right? He was crowned with glory and honor. Everything that we see humanity needs, Jesus does in a greater way. It's like we need someone to pay for our sin. Jesus goes, I'll do you one better. I'll make you righteous. It's like we need someone to actually make us right with God. I'll do you one better. I'll make you children of God. You know, everything we need, Jesus just does on a higher level. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And you go, I don't understand the logic. He who sanctifies Jesus and those who are sanctified by Jesus, they both have the same source. Why does that logically mean that he's not ashamed to call them brothers? Because he assumed the same nature as the people he came to save. That's why. In other words, here's, here's the logic. He became like us to make us like him. I'll say it again. He assumed the inferior, temporary, lesser role of human humanity. He assumed that role, took on real human nature so that we could become what he is in his resurrected human condition. He takes on our broken human nature, flesh, real body, sickness, tiredness, subjected himself to the human condition in order to make way for us to become what he achieves, which is a new resurrected um, mode of existence. You might say it like this. He took on old creation to make us new creations. It's a very simple way to say that. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And the author of Hebrews is going to quote Psalm 22 here. Which for me is a very weird passage to quote. When you're trying to convince your audience that Jesus isn't ashamed to call believers his brothers, his sisters. You know, when, when Jesus goes... Uh, when he's teaching and then his, his family or, or some messengers come up to Jesus and they go, hey, your mom and your, your brothers are here and they want to talk to you. He goes, who are my mother and my brothers? I just pictured Jesus, Jesus saying it like that. Who are my brothers and my, brother, my brothers? Hmm? Those who do the will of my father. And it's like, so are you going to go see your mom or not? You know, I'm just here to tell you they're here. Are you going to go see them? Jesus is making a statement like, my family, my real family, those who belong to God are those who actually do the will of the Father. I'll tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. It's really, really weird that he's quoting Psalm 22 here. I just think it's weird. I don't know. Like, 
you, there's something better you can quote, but the author of Hebrews is intentionally quoting this specific verse to emphasize multiple things. Okay? I will tell of your name to my brothers. Interesting. Does Jesus tell Thomas in the upper room, or Nathaniel, Philip, one of them, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Yeah. I and the Father are one. Yeah. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I, I carry the name of my Father perfectly. Yeah. So what Jesus does when he comes into our world is he does what? He reveals the name of God in a perfect, fuller sense. The name of, of Yahweh is not a, a title. It's not a personal name. It's, it's not an assembling of letters in a language. The name refers to the reputation, the character, the sum total of that person. Jesus reveals that name to the nation of Israel. The brothers here specifically are talking about, or are, it's referring to the nation of Israel. What ethnicity did Jesus assume? He assumed the, the Hebrew ethnicity, a physical descendant of Abraham and David. Why? Because he came to save the people of Israel. Why? Because they were worthy? No. They deserved it? No. They wanted it? No. In order to bring salvation to the rest of the world, he brings salvation first to the Jews. So the brothers here, that he's bringing the name of Yahweh to, revealing the name to, is specifically the Israelite people. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. Now, again, very weird. Um, Isaiah 8.18 seems to be the verse he's quoting. Behold, I and the children. Oh, I guess that's not the verse. I will put my trust in him. He's quoting Psalm 18.2. Uh, probably not. Isaiah 8.17. Likely Isaiah 8, 17. Yeah. Isaiah 8, 17 and 18. So what's interesting to me is again, notice the language. The author of Hebrews goes, see, Jesus isn't ashamed to relate with us and to call us his own. Now, Psalm 22 is the suffering servant, um, suffering Messiah passage. But Isaiah 8, I will put my trust in him. That's really interesting. Um, I will put my trust in him. I'm just thinking through like, why that verse of all things? I'll just keep reading. And again, he quotes Isaiah 8, 18. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Do you remember John chapter 6? When Jesus says, look, all those who the Father gives to me will come to me. And then the Calvinist goes, yes, Calvinism. And I go, well, not necessarily. The point is, there are those who trust in Christ, and those people God has ordained to give to the Son. So the Father here, God is giving children to the I, which is Christ, given to Jesus. The children are given to Jesus here by the Father. Jesus is telling the name of Yahweh, declaring his name to the people, to humans. Jesus is putting his trust in the Father. I, I, again, I don't know why this verse is quoted. I really, 
really <laughs> want to make sense of that. Like I'm, o I'm like OCD. I need this to make sense. So let me read this real quick. Jesus is not ashamed to call those brothers, specifically those who are sanctified. Okay, so Christians. Okay. So he's going to say, Jesus is not ashamed to call Christians his family, essentially. You think that'd be like a, I don't know, like a, a very shameful thing, like for the almighty king of the universe to say, yeah, my family is broken humanity. You go, aren't you pretty embarrassed to know us, God? And he goes, no. Jesus says, I'm not ashamed to call you my family. In fact, I'll tell of your name to my brothers. That this is what Jesus does. He tells of the, the name of Yahweh to his brothers, the Israelites. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. And again, I'll put my trust in him. The point here is, thank you, Doki Doki. The point here is Jesus is not ashamed to take on humanity. That's the point. That's the point. That's that kind of role, a broken human, like, I don't know, flesh and blood that's subject, that's, you know, subject to death and sickness and tiredness and pain. That kind of mode of existence is not appropriate for the God of the universe. And yet the point is exactly that. God is not so, um, so, uh, I don't know. I'll just say this. God is very selfless and generous. And he assumes a real, very real human condition and takes on a very real human nature to show us that there's no distance he won't go. You, you would think that God is too good for that. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Like you go, God, you're, you're way too good for that. Why would you ever think of doing that? He goes, well, because how else will you enter into my kingdom? Now, verse 14, it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, who's the children? Essentially humanity, but I think more specifically the nation of Israel. They, they descend from the same patriarchal father. They share flesh and blood. They have the same genetics, essentially, coming from Abraham. But humanity in general is, is I think, what's at play here. So remember, the point is humanity is given authority over the world. Jesus' death somehow makes way for us to rule over new creation. That, that's the logic here. Since the children share in flesh and blood, in other words, since all of humanity has in common flesh and blood, he himself also, Jesus, also partook of the same things. Do you see that? Jesus himself took on human flesh. Now, this is where we get into the more specific answer of, well, why does, is Jesus... Or is the devil able to be saved? Are the demons able to change their mind and get to heaven? Hold on to that thought for two more verses. Why did Jesus partake of flesh and blood? Well, the very children he's come to save, if they share in flesh and blood, then he's going to take on their nature to save them so that they can take on his nature. 
resurrected human nature. He took on flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy. I love that word. Jesus comes to destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Okay. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you see it? So Jesus' death makes way for and actually is the destruction of the devil. So you go, how does God destroy the power of death? How does God destroy the devil? By dying as one of us. And that seems counterintuitive. That seems illogical. You can't destroy death by dying. Yeah, God can. If we are all subject to human nature and we're screwed, then whoever's going to save us has to become one of us. And whoever comes down as one of us has to die in our place as one of us. And that person has to be strong enough, valuable enough, and sufficient enough to destroy the one who has the power of death, to destroy the devil through his death. So Jesus dies in order to destroy the devil. Amen? Jesus dies to deliver, rescue, save all those who were subject to lifelong slavery through fear of death. So Jesus, he saves us from the fear of death. How? By destroying the one who has the power of death. He renders him powerless. Do you see it? Jesus renders the devil powerless. Leaves him uh, just destroyed. And then through that, those who trust in him can be delivered from the fear of death. You know, we only had reason to fear death when we were under the wrath of God. That was a legitimate, legitimately terrifying um, reality to expect. But now that Jesus has paid our penalty and died our death, he's rescued us from the fear of death. And we're no longer subject to lifelong slavery. That's why Jesus becomes one of us. Because our human nature is what's screwed. So he has to come down, assume our position, so that we can, by the grace of God, take on his resurrected human nature. Now watch. Verse 16. Surely it isn't angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So God kind of makes it, like, not kind of, it's a pretty explicit statement. Did Jesus come to rescue fallen angels? No. Did Jesus come to save demons and spiritual rebels like the devil? No, he didn't. He doesn't help angels. In fact, the problem with that logic to say Jesus came to rescue angels is that the author of Hebrews already said the opposite. Angels are actually sent to help those who are inheriting salvation. Okay. Angels who are on God's side, they do the helping. They do the assisting. 
for the believer. Jesus doesn't come to help angels. Not to say Jesus, angels don't rely on Jesus for existing. But the point is, Jesus doesn't come to save fallen angels and the devil. He helps the offspring of Abraham. Which, in a general sense, is humanity. Who does Jesus come to save? Humanity. Who does Jesus come to save? Those who are made in the image of God to be original rulers of the world, who forfeited their authority and their ability to faithfully honor God and image Him and rule over His creation. That, that's exactly who Jesus came to save. So Jesus doesn't come. The question of can the devil be saved? The answer is no. There's no, there's no salvation opportunity. There's no provision of salvation for the devil and demons. Because I believe there's a higher degree of rebellion on their part. I don't want to get into that right now. But there seems to be a higher degree of an obstinate, once-for-all rebellion when you can see God like in His fullness and go, mm, yeah, we don't want you. That seems to be quite different than human beings. I'm not saying we're not accountable. I'm saying it seems to be that they have a, a higher degree of accountability. And Jesus doesn't come to save angels. That's the, that's the very simple answer. So there is no provision or salvation that's available or afforded to the devil, demons, spiritual rebels. It's not there. He doesn't assume the form of an angel. He assumes the form of a human. Why? To bring us all the way back to Genesis. Because remember, we fell away from God's original design. God goes, the world is good. Adam and Eve, rule over the world. Be fruitful and multiply. Cultivate, steward, rule over the world under the authority of God. Adam and Eve go, nah, forget you. And they want to assume authority, be independent, be their own gods, define good and evil on their own terms. And guess what? They put themselves and humanity into a position where we are helpless. How do I know that? Because why else would Jesus come to help us if we could do it ourselves? The point is you and I can't do anything to save ourselves. We can't do anything to get into the kingdom of heaven on our own. You can't do enough righteous deeds to make up for your wrongs and your failures. You cannot obey God enough to get into heaven. What you can do is rely on the one who actually came to help you and give you salvation, and that's Jesus. He helps the offspring of Abraham, not angels. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. Now, this is where we answer the question fully, okay? Of, well, why does Jesus have to be a human, though? And again, humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation in Genesis. Humanity, and this isn't to inflate your ego, this is just to be consistent with the Word of God. Humanity was appointed to be really the authorities, uh, royalty over the world. Humanity is made in the image of God. You see all those unique characteristics that are attributed to humanity um, and not necessarily angels or any spiritual beings? But also... He had to be made like his brothers. 
Well, to what degree? Like, did he just come in a form? He was no, in every respect. It's pretty clear right there. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Not in most respects, not in some ways. He's either completely like us and he represents us, or he's not enough like us and he can't represent us. If Jesus is going to represent an entire human race, he has to be exactly like them. He has to be tempted. He has to endure. See, I mean, everything the human condition has to offer. Jesus goes, hey, I'll take that. I'll become what they are apart from sin. Well, in fact, he actually does become sin on the cross. He says, I'll, I'll become everything failed humanity is so that they can become everything that I achieve for them. So Jesus comes into our world. He assumes a lesser inferior human nature kind of form, takes on human nature, and he dies our death. Oh, it's sad. And he resurrects three days later to ascend into a new resurrected humanity. So that now through faith in him, we can actually become that new resurrected humanity. We can reign in the new creation. So he had to be made like us in every respect. Why? So that he could become. Here's that becoming. Here's that appointing. Here's that Jesus, the only begotten language, right? And if you haven't already watched the only begotten series, oh man. It's one of my favorite series I've done so far because I learned so much. I would encourage you to go watch that. Once I upload this, I'll link it in the description below. But Jesus becoming through his death and resurrection is he's becoming a merciful and faithful high priest. How can Jesus be our high priest if he can't relate to us on any level? He can't represent us if he's nothing like us. He can't die to pay for human sin unless he's a human. Do you see all the different reasons Christ has to be one of us? There is no high priest unless he's one of us. There is no salvation unless he's one of us. There is no atoning death to pay for the debt of sin unless he's one of us. There is no I become new humanity unless he first becomes what we are. So he becomes like us, in order to what? In order to represent us before the Father. We who trust in Him and believe in Him are recreated, regenerated through our faith by the Spirit. We're made new. The old has passed away. The new has come. We're new creation. And as new creation, okay? As new creation in Christ, we have a representative who is a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, I love that he tags on those two attributes. Jesus isn't just some high priest. You know what he is? He's a merciful high priest. He's a very faithful high priest. In the service of God. In other words, every high priest was appointed, and we're going to get into this in the next few chapters, Every high priest is actually appointed to serve God on behalf of other people. So a high priest is a representative by definition. A high priest in the Old Testament would actually have different gems on his vest 
that would remind him of the, of the different tribes of Israel that he's representing. And he would actually go into the Holy of Holies and bear the name of Israel and be a representative of the people of Israel. And Jesus goes, hmm, it's not good enough for Israel to have relationship with Yahweh. I'm going to represent all of humanity. So that Jesus, as the high priest, goes into the real Holy of Holies to approach the Father and serve and mediate a new covenant that actually benefits all of humanity, regardless of race, ethnicity, age, where you come from, doesn't matter. He had to be made, be made like us. And that word made is not created. It's like when, when I play a game with my kids, sometimes I make my son the police officer. Sometimes I make my daughter uh, the 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 monster that i'm not creating them i'm not bringing them into existence i'm appointing them to be a certain thing it's appointment language jesus is made appointed to be a human being that's why john chapter 1 says the word became flesh it doesn't say jesus was created it said the word already pre-existing became took on a new form and jesus becomes a merciful high priest oh the mercy of god like he can, he can really empathize with us. He has mercy towards us. You know, in the Old Testament, crack my neck, probably die. The Old Testament, there were a lot of arrogant high priests that were not merciful towards the people. They were quite arrogant and self-righteous. And they actually looked down on people. They actually judged people. They were hip hypocritical. Uh, to be merciful is to, uh, mercy by definition is to withhold the bad someone deserves. Grace is to give the good someone does not deserve. So for Jesus to be a merciful high priest, right? To be a merciful high priest means he doesn't just relate with us. He doesn't just understand us. He doesn't just empathize with us. He actually chooses to withhold and actually pay for all the bad we deserve. Okay? And he's a faithful high priest. What's that mean? He's consistent. Unlike every other high priest in the Old Testament that's ever existed, he's consistent. He's reliable. He's faithful. He doesn't change. That's why Jesus being immutable is so important. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's how Hebrews, you know, is eventually going to refer to Christ. He is so reliable, he's not subject to change. There's nothing about him that is, that is you know, subject to inconsistency he is a faithful high priest meaning the covenant he's established it's eternally uh stable the, the the mediation he makes as our high priest the service of god it's perfectly consistent in other words you can rely on him don't look to anyone else no one else is as faithful or as reliable as christ why because everyone else is subject to change Everyone else is finite. Everyone else is mutable. They will change their mind. They will change. Jesus does not. And he makes propitiation for the sins of the people. Does Jesus pay for the sins of rebellious angels? No. Does Jesus pay for the sins of the devil and his demons? No. He makes propitiation, appeasement of wrath, satisfaction, payment for the sins of the people. Humanity has sinned. Namely here, I think Israel is in focus because 
the, the audience of Hebrews is primarily a Jewish audience. So the people there um, can be the nation of Israel, not only, but, but mainly in focus, and then the rest of humanity as well. But no matter what, it's all humanity. But I think the author of Hebrews is, is going to emphasize, but especially, like, you got to understand, Jesus came to Israel first. It doesn't mean he favors them. It means he made a promise to the patriarchs. He comes to fulfill that. But the promise, whoopsie, wasn't just for the physical offspring. It was mainly for the spiritual offspring of Abraham. It's not about, I descend from Abraham, and I have, well, that's great, Jimmy. Do you have the faith of Abraham? Well, no. Okay, then you're not in the, you're not in the kingdom of God. You're not a child of God. Well, I'm a child of Abraham. That's great. Jesus would say, I can, God can turn one of these stones into a ch child of Abraham. So Jesus makes payment, okay, for the sins of the people. Verse 18. Because he himself. You go, why can Jesus make payment for the sins of the people? Not only, okay, is he capable of tasting death for everyone and, and suffering by the grace of God on behalf of all of humanity? Not only can he pay for the sins of the people, not only can he be our perfect high priest, but all of that, okay, is because he himself has also suffered when tempted. Do you remember when it said he was perfected through suffering? We think only of physical suffering. Oh, yeah, he suffered, he bled and died, and he got some physical ouchies. It's not about just the physical ouchies. It's about he actually spiritually was separated from the Father in his human nature. He experienced the penalty of sin. And the, the main form, I think, of, of suffering that is in focus here in Hebrews 2, the main emphasis is on the fact that he was tempted throughout his whole life. He could have summoned legions of angels. Garden of Gethsemane. He could have said, my will be done. No, he said, Lord, Father, your will be done. While he's hanging on the cross, the mockers, the scoffers yelling at, at him. Uh, if you're really the son of God, come down. If God really loves you, he'll bring you off that cross. Do you know how many times Jesus was tempted to just freaking prove it and go, you know what? I'm God in the flesh. I'm done playing this game. You know how many times he was tempted to, you know what, not go through with the atonement? So he was tempted, man, in ways that you and I will never, ever understand. I, I was, I'll tell you this. For Jesus himself to suffer in temptation, that gives me a tremendous amount of comfort in the midst of my own battles, failures, mistakes. It doesn't mean it excuses sin. Okay? It means Christ in his humanity subjected his human nature to legitimate temptation. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is tempted by the devil. All throughout the ministry of Jesus, he's tempted to reveal himself, to just just, I mean, obliterate the bejeebers out of the people who were scoffing at him, right? And it gives me an incredible amount of comfort and peace to know that he actually understands my temptation. And that doesn't excuse my sin. It doesn't justify sin. It just gives me comfort in the midst of my battle. Like we're not, we don't have a merciful high priest that has no idea what we go through. 
We don't have a representative or a God that has no idea the things that we deal with. He doesn't just intellectually see it all and know it. He experientially has gone through it and yet been without sin, sinless. So has Jesus been tempted? 100%. Did he ever sin? No. Was he without sin? Yeah. He is, he's suffered. And the form of suffering in this context is temptation. You and I have to learn how to look at temptation as actually a form of suffering. When you choose not to give in to your, your fleshly nature, when you choose to do what God says instead of what you want, that is a form of suffering. You're giving up your human preferences. So watch. Because Jesus has suffered when tempted, he is able to, watch what he's able to do, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Now, the help that he provides is not just like, hey, buddy, you got this. Jesus ain't just on the sideline being a cheerleader. You got this, buddy. I'm helping you. He's personally able to bring us through temptation, but also watch this. He helps us by conquering every sin we'll ever, ever deal with. Like Jesus doesn't just provide temporary aid. He provides eternal atonement. That's very different. So that even if I fall into sin when I don't want to and I fight and I give in, when I give in to sin, I have a helper. I have someone who not just knows temptation, but he's paid for all my sin. Every single failure, every mistake, every single time I'll sin against the Father. Not to excuse it, not to give me a license to sin, but he's paid for it all. That's how he helps us when we're tempted as our high priest. But also, he knows how to walk through temptation with us because guess what? He's been there. We don't have a God that doesn't understand the deep battle of the human nature and the flesh, he understands. And that comforts me a lot. And to bring this full circle back to verse 1, or verse 4, verse 5, God didn't subject the coming world to angels. He actually put new creation under the feet of humanity. Why? Because guess what? God is mindful of us. I want you to really think through this. Okay? God is so mindful of us. Like he cares so deeply for us. And I, and I want you to think about that because I'll, I'll be honest. I know some of you are going to disagree because you're pretty arrogant. I get it. Inflated egos get in the way. I know that I don't inherently deserve the love of God. I don't inherently deserve the thoughts of God. I don't deserve his concern. It's one thing for God to be mindful where it's like, he knows what's happening. There's another layer where it's like, he actually is concerned and he cares. There's an even deeper layer, which is actually true. Where God is so concerned with humanity and his image bearers, and he values them so much 
that he's willing to come down into our world, take on our human nature and die our death and suffer in our place so that we can come back to the place of reigning alongside Christ under the authority of the Father over the new creation. Do you understand this is all about reappointing humanity by God himself coming down and playing the role of perfect human. And so now that we have a perfect human representative, if we just trust in him, if we just look to him and believe in him and lean on him for salvation, okay, you'll find yourself following in the footsteps of Jesus into new creation where you get to reign alongside him. In other words, God is restoring us back to the Garden of Eden, but instead of just the garden, it's going to be new Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem, the new created world, where only righteousness dwells. How does God bring us back to the garden? Well, he first has to come down and assume a human form and pay for our debt, die our death, fulfill the law, live the perfect life, and be the perfect representative of humanity. Then, and only then, does our faith amount to something. Because we're trusting in the one who's made way for not just our salvation, not just our glorification and our sanctification, but our ability to reign in the new world with Jesus. Because guess what? He's a merciful and faithful high priest. And he gets your temptation. Like, he gets it. He gets your suffering. He's been there. Every single ounce of pain and suffering and heartache, he gets it all. He's been there. And he doesn't just relate. He empowers you to get through it. In other words, Jesus knows exactly how to get you through the valley as the good shepherd. He knows exactly how to bring you through the valley of the shadow of death and bring you through temptation as a victor. And even when you stumble and you choose not to submit to the ways of the good shepherd, he's our advocate. He's our high priest. He's our high priest. So temptation here, Jesus suffered, not just in the form of I'm going to be nailed to the cross and die the death of humanity, but he could have summoned legions of angels. And that was a form of suffering to choose not to. He could have just said, you know what, forget humanity. He could have put down the cross and accused every one of those scoffers of their sin. He didn't. That was a form of suffering to the flesh. He does exactly what he calls his people to. Deny your flesh. Die to yourselves daily. Lay down your life. Lay it down. Pick up your cross and follow me. We have a very merciful and faithful high priest who has restored us back to the position of really being children of God in order to reign in the new world. And the new world that's coming, it's given under the authority of Jesus. The father goes, here's the new world, son. And the son goes, I want to share that with all those who trust in my name and believe in me. I want to share this reigning and this new creation and this kingdom. I want to share it. I know I worked for it. I know I did all the work and I achieved it. Jesus goes, I want to share it with everyone who trusts in the gospel and, and believes on my name for salvation. 
That's a merciful, faithful high priest. Now, I'm going to do something different. Usually we have our Zoom call. I'm going to actually take a few questions now, okay? I'm going to take a few questions because I know people are asking all these different things, okay? And so I want to pause and go, I see you. I see your questions. I, I really um, would love to um, uh, answer these questions as best as I'm able to. So now I'm going to engage. This is a live stream. So I'm going to engage as much as I can. If you've asked any questions, you need to ask them again so I can see them. Otherwise, uh, I won't be able to answer something I don't see. I apologize this morning, guys. We had technical difficulties and my dad was, um, he had a job interview and stuff. So I was about 45 minutes late to the live stream. So instead of doing a Zoom call today, I'm going to actually have a time of, of Q&A because I noticed there's a lot of questions coming through and I get it. It's difficult to process this stuff. And I don't claim to have all the answers. But I am going to answer as best as I can any questions you have, okay? We love a dad on his hustle. Yep. So, um, I apologize for the no Zoom call and the late live stream, but I'm going to make it up by answering questions as best as I can. Um, so, ask your questions now. Where's my Q&A box? Come on, TikTok. Give me my Q&A box. Where's my Q&A box? I need it. Um, so ask your questions. I know you've asked some. Go ahead and ask now. Go. Go, 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 go. Ask away. Thank you, Doki Doki, for the gift. Again, really awesome. <clears throat> questions if not should we be baptized a second time if the first time was when you were young sure I'll tell you what in the Bible there's no restriction on how many times you can get baptized like in water I'm talking about water baptism, not the spiritual baptism of, of, of being immersed into Christ. Water baptism is where everyone disagrees. There is something quite mystical about water baptism in terms of there's something happening spiritually there. Okay, and whether you chalk it up to spiritual warfare or whatever it is, okay. But water baptism is a, is a declaration to the world. Hey, I belong to Christ. My new life is in him. My old life is dead. Water baptism symbolizes the real spiritual baptism that Ephesians 4 speaks of. The one baptism of the spirit. Where we're, we're actually immersed into Christ. His death, his resurrection, his perfect life. We're immersed into that by the Holy Spirit. Okay, And we're brought up into new life. That's the real baptism of the spirit. And then water baptism is showing the world my allegiance, my loyalty is with Christ. And that is actually a form of spiritual warfare. Like it really is like the enemy does not like your declaration of your trust in Yahweh and your allegiance to Christ. So I would encourage you, like if you think your first baptism wasn't like really heartfelt, do it again. 
there, there's, in other words, it's not like God's like, hey, come on, that's enough times. You don't need to claim your loyalty to me anymore. People don't need to hear about this. Now do it as much as you want. Get baptized every day. It does nothing for your salvation. I think it does a lot for your testimony and for people just to know. Uh, Christina asks, was Adam God too, since Jesus was the second Adam? No, because Jesus is not a perfect parallel to Adam. I'll say this. There's a lot that Adam lacks that Jesus actually possesses. That's why he's the last Adam. Um, so Jesus is the last Adam. And there's a scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Jesus is called the last Adam. And so when, when the Bible makes a parallel between two characters or makes a comparison, we need to let the Bible take us as far as it wants to take that parallel. Just because the Bible says Jesus is paralleled to Adam doesn't mean he's perfectly like Adam in every regard or Adam is perfectly like Christ. That's not true. So whenever there's a comparison in scripture, we should just go, hey, where does this, what is the scripture explicitly comparing or paralleling between Christ and Adam? In what way is he the last Adam? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 says Jesus is a life-giving spirit. Um, Adam was a living person. In other words, Adam received life. Jesus gives life. Adam was of the dust. Jesus is of the heavens. So there, there's a lot of differences between the two. Um, so Jesus and Adam are not a perfect parallel, but there's a lot of comparison to be drawn between the two. And then the scriptures give us language for those uh, that comparison. But Adam is not God. He's actually called the son of God uh, in Matthew or Luke. I forget, Luke 3. Um, so what does it mean that we can be changed into the image of God from glory to glory? If the image of God means we look like him. Um, for me to be changed, good question, Christina. For me to be changed into the image or to from glory to glory, um, that's referring to, let me pull up the verse. So many prosperity preachers take this thing freaking out of context. It really makes me mad. Let's pull this verse up together so you guys can see it. 2 Corinthians 3.18. I think this is the passage you're referring to. Um, and we all, with unveiled face, contrasted with Moses who had a veiled face, we actually are beholding the glory of the Lord. Um, whereas the people of Israel couldn't even behold a reflection of the glory of the Lord on Moses' face. We are beholding the glory of the Lord currently. It's happening as believers. And we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, there's two things going on here. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The being transformed is an active process. So that's presently taking place. The same image, the, the final degree of glory, you might say, is that same image. That's the end goal. In other words, the being transformed very simply is sanctification. The being into the image of one degree of glory to another, the final degree of glory where I'm in the perfect image of Christ, that refers to the glorified, resurrected state. Um, and I believe 
It is to look like Jesus, not just internally, but my body now is uh, reflecting the glory that's always been within me. You know, Paul talks about how uh, we have this glory in earthen vessels. We have this glory or in jars of clay is another verse, is another translation. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says we have this treasure in jars of clay. Um, so these, this flesh bag, this body is, is containing what Paul calls a treasure. Uh, and I think that's the glory being referred to. We currently are in the image of Christ spiritually, but my body doesn't match that. And my life doesn't match that. So both my life and my body are going to be perfectly and completely transformed at the resurrection where I will actually look like, First John tells us we will be revealed as children of God. The world doesn't know us yet, but we, they will see us as we are. So in other words, my position in Christ is, is the same, but my life and my, my body are going to be perfectly transformed to match my position in Christ. That's what it means to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. That is referring to, I believe, um, the resurrection, the glorification of the saint. And we are moving that, that direction as we are progressively becoming more and more like Christ in the way that we live. Um, so, um, how do I let the Spirit lead me? Monica asks, how do I let the Spirit lead me? I have so many voices in my head. Sometimes it's hard to know. Okay, I'm going to do my best to answer this in a general sense. Um, the Spirit leading me is going to look a certain way. And I don't think you're asking, hey, what does it look like when the Spirit is leading me? How do I know when I'm actually following the Spirit? I think you're saying, how do I know when the Spirit of God is actually talking to me in my head? Okay. And that is an entirely different question. Discernment is the issue there. And so I think, uh, uh, what's it called? Tez. First John chapter four. Hey buddy, you can come in here. You can come see daddy. Sorry, my son's looking for my wife. Salem, you can come in here. What's wrong, buds? Oops. Is mommy putting Layla to sleep? Oh, she is. You can sit with me. I'm just talking to some people. You want to come talk with them? I'm almost done, buds. Let me take you to 1 John chapter 4. Here, here's a very simple answer, and then I'll get to how can God be tempted. Um, beloved, do not believe every spirit. So, uh, Monica, when you're going, I, I don't know, I have so many voices in my head. Here's the first line of defense. Don't automatically believe everything you're told or everything you think. That's the first step. That's called discernment. Secondly, test the spirits. 
So the first step is I can't assume everything I think or believe is right. Second, I actually compare what I'm thinking, what I'm hearing. I compare those thoughts and those voices in my head. I test them to see whether they're from God. Yeah, baby? Is she in the room? Okay, hold on one sec, okay? I'll make sure you don't go by yourself. I will walk with you and hold your hand, I promise. Give me a few more minutes. Hold on one sec. All these weird things. So I would say, the way you recognize the voice of Jesus, don't believe every spirit. Test what, you list, what you're hearing, what you believe, and go, does the word of God say this? And if so, then that's how it's more likely from God, okay? And also, I would say, um, John chapter 10 Jesus says, um, Jesus says, look, the sheep follow the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. Why? Because they know his voice. Do you know the voice of Christ? Like, can you recognize his voice? And it seems like the answer is sometimes, maybe, I don't know, I'm confused. So my, my very simple solution is, Go spend more time with God in His Word. Get to know His character, Monica. Get to know His ways. Get to know His laws. Get to know His, His, His heart. Get to know His love, okay? And as you do, okay, you are recognizing um, His ways so that when the opportunity presents itself, you're more likely to discern and recognize His voice. You won't recognize a voice you're not familiar with. That, that's the simple answer. You won't recognize a voice you're not familiar with. When, when I hear my son in the hallway, like I only know it's my son because I've spent time with him. Like I've gone on little dates with him. We hang out all the time. I love my son. I raise my son. I care for my son. So I recognize his voice outside in the hall, even if it was in Disneyland. I could recognize his voice from, from the thousands of other voices around me. And so Monica, you grow in the knowledge of his voice as you spend time in the word of God. If you don't spend time in God's word, you're less likely to know his voice. And discernment comes through knowing God. How can God be tempted? Uh, the very simple answer, Christina, is that God in James chapter 1, I think you're referring to, James 1.13, God cannot be tempted with evil. Okay. I think the very simple answer is in the, in the divine nature of God himself, there's no potential for evil. It's not even on the table. When Jesus assumes a human nature, well, now his humanity is capable of giving into sin. The beautiful thing about Christ's humanity, though, is there was a very legitimate opportunity to give into sin. Every, I, I, like, I'm not denying that. But I believe there was also this absolute assurance that guaranteed he would not because of his divinity. Because of his divinity. So God can't be tempted by evil. But if God assumes the form of a man, that nature, that body, that flesh is subject to temptation. Good thing God came down to make sure there's no way he could lose. Good thing God came down to bring a guaranteed outcome. Like he guarantees a victory. 
in the midst of evil. In other words, no human could face temptation, so God comes down and he does it for us because exactly this, he can't be tempted with evil, but the fleshly nature, the, the human nature of Christ that he assumes really is subject to temptation. It was a real legitimate thing. So, um, it seems like there's a lot of debate in the YouTube section about oneness theology and Trinitarian theology. Rather than answer what is going to take an hour or two, I'm just going to link my video. I've already done a video on this. What do you know? I've done a video going through the Bible and showing why Trinitarian theology is more sound, more logical, and more uh, theologically consistent, okay, with the Bible. I don't believe oneness Pentecostal theology is. doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It just means we come to different conclusions. Um, so let me pull up that video for you. It's right here. I'm going to link it in the description below. Or actually in the chat. I'm going to link it in the chat. So if you're on YouTube right now, here's the Trinitarian video. I've already done it. <clears throat> so there's really two forms. When you say Jesus is God, okay, there's really two camps. There's either oneness Pentecostal theology, which they might identify as something else. They might not even know that term exists, but they might have the same theology. And then there's the Trinitarian view, which is God is three in one. So in this video, I, I make it very clear why I believe the scripture teaches God is three in one. And why I don't believe God assumes different forms and, hey, I'm Jesus. Hey, I'm the Spirit. Hey, I'm the Father now. He doesn't take on different modes. Um, it doesn't seem consistent with the way the Bible reveals Yahweh. Um, someone, Christina asked, and this will be the last question and then we're out of here. How is Jesus never sinning, comforting for a human? I think when people are self-righteous, that's actually going to be discouraging. I'll say that again. I think when people are self-righteous and they want to do it on their own and they don't want to rely on Jesus, the thought that Jesus is perfect actually can be offensive to them and even like uh, terrifying and even like, oh, what's it called? Like um, discouraging where it's like, Man, I'll never be that. And they become jealous and like, ah, and they're, they're trying to be what Christ can only be for them. But when people actually rest in the righteousness of Christ, oh man, it is a fantastic, comforting thought to know my Jesus, my Savior, my King, the Messiah, he never messed up. And, and my faith, my salvation is built on someone who is perfect and never sinned. And that comforts me to know that he's gone through what I've gone through and he succeeded perfectly. So even if I fail, he doesn't. And his victory overrides my failure. His victory overrides my failure. So um, because of the whole mess today, there is no Zoom call. Just a lot going on. Again, I'm still getting back into to Florida time. I got in uh, Monday and then yesterday I did my thing. I just took my hat. I love you. And so, that's it for today. That's it for today. Um, I think I need to make sure I tell you guys this. 
that we have a live stream when, when the schedule is consistent, when I'm not traveling all over the world, when I'm back in my seat at home, we do live streams Monday, Wednesday in Hebrews, and then Friday, okay, Friday, uh, we do a, a live Bible study workshop. You want to sit with me and say hi? And so we have a live stream every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Uh, besides today, we always have a Zoom call every weekday, uh, but some things happen each day, and I can't control what happens in the time. You can say hi. Hi. And so um, if you guys would like to know more about this ministry, let me pull up AboveReproachMinistry.com. For those of you that don't know, I have a podcast. We have a YouTube channel. Um, I have a book that's released. You can check out all this beautiful stuff at AboveReproachMinistry.com. I think I should brighten it. No, I should lower it. Yeah. What does lower it mean? Brighten it. There we go. Uh. So right here, we have free online Bible study skills courses like that are you know, revolving around a certain key word or key phrase in Ephesians. You can click on one of these and start learning how to read the Bible today. Like they're completely free. Um, it's completely free as well as the free Bible study workshops, mm -hmm. as well as our free devotional studies <laughs> oh, no. we release every week. <laughs> so uh, we, have, we have a lot of cool stuff going on here. Join the Discord community. And um, if you want to give to the ministry, that's what supports my family so that I can keep creating this free content every week when I'm not traveling. Uh, we have a free Bible study workshop, a free devotional study, and a free online skills Bible study skills course that we release every week as well as three podcasts, yeah. three YouTube videos, trainings, and then the Zoom calls every weekday. So we have a lot going on. And you guys make this happen. Say, you guys make this happen. Okay. So I think that's it for today. Christina says, you say it's mental gymnastics to see the other uh, point of view, but I'd say the same. Yeah, I tried. There was a lot of almost like disregarding like clear, explicit scripture to like try and make sense of how God could be uh, taken on different modes. So it was more gymnastics to try and assume that view than to just go, you know what? God actually says that uh, the spirit comes and the angel of the Lord is, is, is him, but not him. And I would say the best way to, I don't know if you've watched that video yet, Christina, but go watch, um, the video I showed you where it's like four hours of proving Jesus is God in the flesh. And um, so I, uh, I think in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is one of the greatest insights and illustrations of the Godhead where you have the angel of the Lord who is God, but not God. And um, it gives you a category for someone who is Yahweh, but alongside Yahweh. And it doesn't make sense until you go, oh my gosh, God is three in one. And um, I think that's it. But yeah, Christine, I don't think um, trying to be like Jesus is, is conceited. Maybe I didn't uh, clarify. I'm not saying trying to be like Christ is conceited. I'm, try I'm saying trying to replace Christ is conceited and, and self-righteous. In other words, there are some people that are like, you know what? I don't need Jesus. I'll be righteous on my own. Like, I'll admit he's perfect, but I'm going to be perfect as well so that I don't have to rely on Christ. And that's delusional. You'll never be perfect. But it's godly to say, you know what? Christ is perfect. I lean on his perfection and I'm going to rest in his redemption 
as I pursue perfection and fail along the way. So I think we should still aim for perfection, aim for Christ who is perfect. um, But don't get so caught up in condemnation and shame when you miss it. Because it's not about your own ability to obey and your own righteousness. It's about Jesus's righteousness. Um, So he's the example of my faith and I'm pursuing him and and my goal is perfection. But there's grace when I mess up which doesn't justify or give me a license to sin. So I just think a lot of people can be grow self-righteous where they're like, Jesus is my example, but he's not my savior. I've met people like that where it's like, I don't know, like, I know what you mean. You're like, I'm trying to obey God, but it's, you're slowly starting to replace Christ and not trust in him. Um, so I think there's a degree of, I trust in the redemption of Jesus. I trust in his perfection as I pursue um, the, mo- the perfection he's modeled for me. Mm, fake berries. So I think that's it for today, guys. Thanks for watching. And I will see you guys later. later. Sorry, there's no Zoom call today. Later. later. There's no Zoom call. I love you all. Um, I think you guys know why. Life just happens. Ooh, I got a kiss from my son. So I'll see you guys later. <laughs> love you all. Go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. Say bye.